I thought I would just share um, one. Uh, there are some mother-in-law jokes. Um, but as I looked at some, not even they're so mean. And I just figured, so I thought I would just share um, one. And that is, uh, I was reading about a guy who uh, was, you know, dating these different girls and he'd bring them home and, he, and his mother didn't like any of them. You know, the old mother-in-law thing. And, and he kept trying and then finally brought home one girl who was a lot like his mom. Really amazing. You know, talked like her, acted like her, um, had a lot of characteristics like her. And his mother loved her. It was wonderful, except for one thing. His dad didn't like her. Anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, mother-in-law get a bad rap, don't they? Okay. Let's read Matthew's account. When he visits... Peter's mother-in-law. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he, see, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. And when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our affirmities. And carried our diseases. Let's pray. Father, I invite you as we've invited you and have been worshiping you. And I pray for um, every person here. We've all either had people around us who have been ill or are struggling with illness even right now. Some have experienced your healing and some haven't. And we bring all that together and we ask for grace and mercy and love in this mystery. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would challenge us and speak to us and and move us more fully into your heart, no matter where we're at. And whatever that looks like in your name, we pray. Amen. So let's begin in verse 14. And we're just going to kind of walk through this. And I'm going to share with you some insights as we go and, and hopefully share with you as best I can. My understanding is I have studied scripture and also share with you um, what I believe God has placed in my heart. And the first thing is when you get to verse 14, it's very simply, it's following a couple different healings. It says that when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now, as we get into this passage of Scripture, this is the third account of a healing. And I've said from the weeks before, so this is a quick summary. Chapter 4, around verse 23, there's a statement of the characteristic of Jesus' ministry that he would teach and he would preach and he healed every illness and disease. And then it goes into chapter 5 through chapter 7, which speaks about Jesus teaching and preaching, declaring the kingdom. It's this incredible sermon on the mount where he declares the truths of the kingdom of God. And what caught my attention when I was in my own quiet times was chapter 8 and 9. And in chapters 8 and 9, as I began to look at it, I saw all these demonstrations of power, the demonstration of God healing people, the, the demonstration of what had been declared of the reality of the kingdom, so people would see this through this Messiah. And then it, it bookends it again with chapter 9, where it says, once again, here's the characteristic of the ministry of Jesus, very similar to chapter 4, verse 23. And then it moves from that to this do what Jesus is doing, in a sense, go out and declare and demonstrate the reality of the kingdom, his love and his life and his power to transform your heart and character. Well, as you look at this, it's interesting, even in chapters 8 through 9, there is a method to Matthew's madness, so to speak. He is arranging these passages of healing in a very interesting fashion 
In chapter 8, he begins and he starts out with a healing of a leper, verses 1 through 4. And continues in verses 5 through 13 of a healing of a soldier. And then gives a third account, this healing of a woman, Peter's mother-in-law, and then the town that gathers at the door. And you have to ask yourself, why does Matthew include this particular healing and not some other healing story? And what, what happens in Matthew 8 through 9 is he has these three healings and then he has this call. If you look at the next following verses, this call to action that, you, you know, about becoming a follower of Jesus. And then he gives three more healings as you continue in 8 through 9. And another call to action, the story of Matthew, Levi, becoming a follower. And then three more stories, demonstrations of God's power. And then this call once again that we would see God send out workers into the harvest. So in chapters 8 and 9, there's this particular building of healings and call, healings and call, and, and healings and call. And you have to ask yourself, well, why does Matthew do this? And you have to remember, as I said last week, Matthew is, is arranging these stories topically and not chronologically. This is not some kind of chronological diary of Jesus' life. So there is a purpose theologically of why Matthew is putting these in here. Both Mark and Luke, if you will read their accounts, talk about this story. But before this story, they have a healing of a person who is demonized. In fact, it's the account of what happens before this story where they come to the house of Peter and his mother-in-law. Before that, it is the Sabbath morning and Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He's teaching in church and as he's teaching and he gets up to teach, a person begins to manifest a demonic, unclean spirit. And in the midst of that, he goes in the midst. It would be as if it happened here. And he, in the midst of the preaching, he went over and he cast it out and he went on his way and continued and the service was over. Which is really a no-no because in that day and age, um, when in the Jewish um, faith, there's enough um, laws that would say you don't do that kind of healing is work. You don't do healing on the Sabbath. So the people who are real legalistic were really not too happy with what Jesus had just done. And so you get this idea that Jesus, he leaves there, he gets done with church, he goes home. And it's almost as if he expects to eat. It, you see him going into the house of Peter and the meal isn't ready. His mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. And, and you can tell this is the Sabbath day in Matthew. Not just because of Mark Luke account, but a good Jew who would understand this whole concept would see in verse 16 this little marker. When evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him. You see that? When evening came in verse 16. And the reason they waited for evening was because, as I just said, you don't do that kind of work on the Sabbath. So everyone was staying at home. You could only walk a certain distance. But when the sun set, the Sabbath was over, the whole town gathered at the door of this person who was... This rabbi who had these incredible gifts and they were all standing there bringing their needs before Jesus. And it raises the question, why did Matthew put things the way he did? He's a topical preacher, if you want to put it that way here. A topical evangelist. And he's arranging these stories with a purpose. And he includes some miracle stories. And as we see in Mark and Luke, he doesn't talk about the demon. I goes right to this one. And there's a reason as you begin to see it. He begins, first of all, and he talks about a leper. He's speaking to Jews here. He wants these Jews who, who have been given um, and been chosen by Abraham, who have been given the law through Moses, who saw the kingdom of God being established through David and Solomon, and who were sent the prophets, these who should have known the ways of God, these who should have been close to the heart of God. And he begins and he starts out and he talks about those who seem to be in their mind far from God. 
Here's a leper. He's an outcast. He was cut off from the community and he comes before Jesus. And the person you wouldn't expect gets a healing. And then you see the centurion. He's a soldier. He's one of the Romans who have come to the city of Capernaum where they had this main thoroughfare from the north to the south where there would be taxation. And because of the uprising that would happen due to the fact of the taxation, they would place a garrison, a company of soldiers in that area. And the centurion, this leader of a thousand, comes before Jesus. And, and in their mind, they're thinking, he's not a guy that they like, and there is no way that God is going to show any favor on this guy. And yet he comes before him, and Jesus heals him. And now he adds, just so he knows, and the Jews know, this is not just kind of like God has come just for the Gentiles and those who are far away. He adds an interesting story, but here's the person he uses. He uses a woman. And in that day, and in the Jewish culture, women were not considered to have a whole lot of value. In fact, if you go around the world today and you, you um, talk to people who work in, in third and second worlds, you'll find often in many of these cultures one of the, one of the most um, grievous issues is the status and position of women. They are still in many places considered almost property. But by the grace of God in America, that has, much of that has been lifted, I think, by the very gospel itself. But here is a woman, and in their day, in the Jewish culture, this was a big deal, that Jesus would come and he would touch a woman who's a Jew, and then he would touch a woman who's ill. You don't do that on the Sabbath. And yet, the touch of Jesus is always, instead of becoming defiled, takes those who are defiled and cleanses them. And, and you have this story. And in the whole, I think, purpose of Matthew, putting some of these together the way he did as he was speaking to a Jewish group, as he speaks to people who seem to be having all the riches and resources of God, who seem to be close to him, who have his word, who seem to be the people that are chosen by God, who are walking with God. And he gives this picture of the truth. And that is that God himself comes and he shows favor. He heals. He moves. He works. Not on the basis of merit, not on the basis of some kind of physical, generational um, relationship to a people, but on the basis of grace. It's purely a gift, completely undeserved. And he gives this gift. And it's mysterious in some ways, but what you see here is that people who are broken, who are dependent, who are coming before him, there are times that this gift is given, and it's given in this way to people who come to him engage in faith. And they just ask, and they, they don't demand, and he gives. As you go on and you see in this passage of Scripture, verse 15, Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and she began to wait on him. To get a little background here is you, you have to see that, um, that Jesus is coming to Peter's house. And if you read in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, verse 44, you'll see that, that Peter and Andrew were really natives. They're, they grew up in Bethesda. And in, in Bethsaida, I'm sorry, Bethsaida. And in Bethsaida, that was on the northeast side of Lake Galilee. 
But at some point, Peter and Andrew and them moved to Capernaum, whether it was a more uh, a, a better city for commerce and for the fishing business that he was running. They moved in some point to Capernaum because we're told both in Mark and Luke. And if you look back also in verse five here, you see that Jesus entered Capernaum. And so you have you have Peter who grew up in Bethsaida, moves to Capernaum and we're told that he is married. First Corinthians nine, verse five, it says the apostle writes, don't we have a right to take a believing life, wife along with us? And, and Paul is, is, is making this point. Don't we have a right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? He's talking even Peter. So you, you, you see um, this sense of here is Peter, who at some point has purchased a home, and in his home he is married and has his mother-in-law living with them. And they come home and they find that she has a fever. And that day, fevers were considered themselves to be even an illness. Many believe and commentators think that possibly she had malaria. It could have been that in that area, there's, there's a uh, known even throughout the world today. In many places, there, you, people are, are stricken with um, malarial disease. We're not sure. But Jesus comes in. He takes her hand. And he touches her and she's healed. And if you think about it, it almost seems to me kind of accidental. He comes home. He's had a day where he's been teaching. He's ready to eat. Peter's mother-in-law is ill. Jesus does something that just seems kind of interesting here. And he just touches her and her fever leaves. And what I think the author wants us to understand, what Matthew, the gospel writer, wants us to catch is these final words. The fever left her, and she got up, and she began to wait upon him. Her healing was purposeful. It was practical. And it always does when God touches a person's life. One of the marks that a person has experienced the touch of God in their life is the desire to gratefully serve him. You know, if people have been in any way marked or touched by the grace and favor and goodness of God, there is this sense that when he touches your life, your desire is to turn around and say, how can I serve you? And what's interesting here is it it doesn't say, um, as you read this passage of Scripture, it doesn't say that she got up and she began to wait on the boys. It doesn't say she began to wait on Peter. It doesn't say she began to wait on Andrew. It's really interesting. It says he began to wait on him, Jesus, the one who had touched her life. Which is a good thing to remember, because I at times need to remember, and you will as well, if you've been touched by the Lord Jesus Christ and he's called you to serve and you're serving others. Your primary responsibility of service is not necessarily to them. It is first and foremost to Jesus. Because you know what? At times it's really difficult, isn't it, to serve some people? And it's not about that. It's about that you have been touched and Jesus has touched your life and he has served you. And so in response, you say, Jesus, then how do I serve you? And if you've never done that, you've never asked God, you, you have to, to say, one, has he really touched my life? Or secondly, if he has touched your life, is he leading you to some way where you gratefully will serve him? And so you see, this miracle is, is really rather practical. She got up and she made them something to eat. And they had lunch, and my hope as I read this, I'm reading between the lines, is that he then took a nap. Because Mark tells us that the whole town came to his door after sunset. And it 
goes on to tell us that the, the next day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. And he went off to be with his father. So you have this, you, you get a glimpse of the life of Jesus as he's serving other people. And so you get this picture here where he then touches their life and her life and she serves. Verse 16 and 17 then. When evening came, the Sabbath is over. Many who were demon possessed were brought to him. And it says that he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew includes this, this scripture passage from Isaiah 53. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now Matthew specifically speaks about demon-possessed. And again, I'll use the word demonized often when I speak about this because that's really what the Greek word is. Sometimes the word possession has kind of thrown us off. And so in a few weeks, June 13th, when we get to Matthew 8, verses 28 through verse 34, and it talks about the two demonized men who are in this land of the Gadarenes, I'll talk much more about how the demonic influences even illness, um, even today. But that's for another time in a little brief commercial for you to come back. Anyway. Matthew adds here in verse 16 something that's really characteristic of Matthew himself. He says, with a word, Jesus heals. Verse 8 of chapter 8, you remember that passage when the soldier came, the centurion comes before him, and the centurion says to him, just say what? The word. And all you need to do is say the word. And if you go back and you read even with the leper, you see this characteristic idea. Verse 3, when Jesus says to the person, this leper comes before him, he says, Jesus, I know you have the ability. I know you can do this, but will you do it? And he goes, of course. And he uses a word. In, in, in the English here, it's two words, but in the Greek, it's just one word. It's the word be clean or cleansed. So you get this idea. What Matthew is trying to build up is that whenever God desires to speak his word... And this word in the, in the Greek, and often they'll use the word logos, which means the word, and will refer to the scripture as a whole. But there are times when he's talking about the word, this word that comes with power, the word that is used is the word rhema in the Greek. And it's this idea that God places his word that is an active, creative power, which Jews were well aware of. They understood the Father. They understood the fact that when the Father spoke, He spoke light into creation. He spoke the earth and the worlds and all around it because all He had to do is by His Word say it. And when He said it, out of nothing came something. And what He is trying to help us see right here is here is this Jesus who is a representative, who comes before God, who has the very ability that God the Father has. Now He stands before people and this Jesus is your Messiah. He is the one who has come for you and no matter what your situation is. And He has the ability by His power to say the Word and the Word has the effect to do what needs to be done in your life. So that if it's in your life you are, you are understanding your sin and you're understanding that your sin has cut you off of a relationship with God, it is by the very word that happened through the cross that very word he says you are cleansed you are forgiven and you then live in the forgiveness of the creative power of that word and he wants to get across this point that jesus has an ability not only to relieve us of our sins but when it even comes to physical illness that he has the ability through his word to speak forth and there may be times and you may not even be aware of it but God will give you a word and you may say a word to someone. You're not even aware of the word. But that person could come back to you at another point and say, you can't believe what you had just said to me. Those words that you said to me at a certain time in my life made such a difference in my life. They gave me faith. They created something within me. It was because it was the word of God, not you. 
There are times that God may place on you a word, a word of that gravity, and you experience it, you know it, as you speak it, you, by the faith of God, have the ability to speak that word into the life of someone, and it can bring healing. And so he makes this point that Jesus, unlike us, has the ability, unlike us in, in this sense, that only Jesus himself, as a representative of God, has that, that ability to do with his word always again and again. But when we walk in Jesus and we understand his spirit, there are opportunities that come because we are now the body of Christ that we can speak those things into reality. And so then Matthew adds in verse 16, and he healed all the sick. Now, Mark says that many of the sick, when they came, were, were healed. And you kind of go, well, who's telling the truth here? Well, what Matthew is getting across is this again, is this authority and power of who Jesus is as the Messiah. Because any person and all people who came to Jesus were healed. There was nothing and no one and anything that could ever stand against the power and authority and the love and compassion and the faith that was expressed through Jesus Christ himself. So that when people came, they brought their needs and they begged and they came before him. And, and Jesus responded in faith with the word. He always did it. There's a sense that I kind of, um, as I've studied revivals in the past, it's kind of interesting to me. There are times when God, by His grace and by His mercy, will allow His Holy Spirit to come in such fullness that I, I can back this up, I believe, with Scripture. That there are times when His Spirit comes that, that God, in such richness, the energy of His very presence, and people come into it, it's almost like everybody gets a free pass. That's almost what you see happening here. Because sin and sickness and, and, and all those things can never stand in the presence of God. They have to flee. And God sometimes allows for that to happen. Because people call out Him into Him in faith. And they even from their hearts desire it, not because it's about them, but it's because they, de- they understand that they're not deserving. And in all humble dependence, they come before Him. And they begin to believe that this God can do this through a word. And then as they begin to come to Him, they also recognize that this is all about what God can do to bring glory to His name so that others can be served. And so, verse 4. Matthew doesn't quote Isaiah 53 Verse 4, like the other old, many New Testament authors do. In, in the New Testament, you'll find Old Testament quotes are often from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But this is one of these cases where Matthew, as he's quoting, he's actually using his Hebrew skills to translate the Hebrew Bible to the Hebrew people. And so as you read through this, it's very interesting. Matthew actually translates Isaiah intentionally. Because in the Septuagint, it actually spiritualizes this verse. Not that it makes it any less, but it generalizes it. and takes Isaiah 53 for the content of what all Isaiah 53 is saying, but takes these words and it says this. The Septuagint says, He took up our sin and carried our hardship. And Matthew knew, and every good Hebrew knew, that when the Messiah came, it wasn't just sin and hardship, but the words that Isaiah actually uses, and the NIV translates very well, is that he took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. And those two verbs, took up and carried, are really important because Jesus actually takes infirmities and takes them away, and he lifts them off the sick by removing diseases. And they understood 
A good Jew understood that when the Messiah was coming, he would bring with him the kingdom the way it's supposed to be, and he would set it up. And when he would set it up, it would be as if heaven would be here on earth, and those things would be removed. So in the life of Jesus, you see him actually bringing the kingdom and actually doing these things where he is, as Matthew says, he did remove diseases, he did remove infirmities. And so when John the Baptist began to wonder, he said, you know, as he was in prison, he's looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, and he doesn't see Jesus beginning to develop this political kingdom. And he's beginning to wonder, he's saying, Jesus, I thought you came because I thought you were setting up this kingdom. And he, he who, should, who was close to Jesus, was the forerunner of Jesus, begins to doubt. You know, it's interesting how Jesus responds. He says, when Jesus, John the Baptist began to wonder... Jesus said, go back to him. He told the disciples of John the Baptist, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the, catch this, the poor. Because it seems to be, throughout Scripture, the people, and he uses poverty. In fact, many of the revivals, throughout history always happened to people of a lower social status who were impoverished because they are the kind of people, as Jesus said, it's tough for the rich man to get in, the kind of people who didn't have the resources of God who came to their knees and cried out, we need you. We need you desperately. And he said, go tell them. I'm doing what the Messiah was said and called to do. And his point is there's the authority and the power and the healing work of Jesus was available. You can trust everything to him. And Jesus heals. And I believe he still heals today. And as I said last week, there were two times that Jesus was amazed at people's faith. Two times. One time with the centurion, this soldier, who is a pagan, comes before Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and goes, you have great faith, unbelievable faith. Because all, you, all he, he said is just say the word, and he believed it, and Jesus said, as you have said, it will be done. And there's one other time where he's just amazed at their faith. He's amazed at the faith of the people. And Mark says it this way. He could not do any miracles because the faith that he was amazed at was the faith of the people in his own hometown in Nazareth. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And for the last number of years, I have had this sense where I felt the pressure of God's Holy Spirit's finger on my chest, kind of asking this question, what side of the equation of amazement do you stand, Kevin? Do you stand on the side where I look and I go, wow, with great faith? Or do you stand on the side of the equation where you have been like the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, who he came to, who had all the resources, who had the word of God, who had the prophets and everything, and has grown up in the sense of that. You are are so close to it. You are so near it. You are so supposedly on the track. And now you begin to look and you just just, you don't have even some of the faith. In fact, God can't do what he would like to do because of the faith that's lacking. And I just ask us to think about that. I ask us to ask that question as a body uh, in this whole thing. You see, on one hand, we can't demand. We can't put God in a box. We can't say, God, you're going to do this. We demand you to do this. But on the other hand, we sometimes, on the other side of the thing, and they're all control issues, 
We stand on the other side and we say, you know, I don't know, because our theology limits him and we have all these things. And so we then, because of what we know and we experience, rather than according to God's word, we limit what God might do. In the better place that I'm called, I call us to stand. And what God has been talking to me in my own personal life about is to stand in the place of mystery where I walk on a daily basis saying, I want more of you, God. I want to trust you more. I want to lean more into the faith. I want to live in the risk. I'm not going to worry about disappointing you. I have prayed for people and I have seen as I prayed for people for some reason they're not healed. I don't know why. And I've been disappointed. But I don't want to lead people in a sense where I... I, I cause them to move into guilt, but at the same time, I don't want to be on that side where I'm not having the faith because God may want to do some things in people's lives, but because of our lack, God doesn't do it. Let me quote um, from Don Carson in his commentary. He was my New Testament professor, and I think it's very interesting, um, a bright man. He says, Matthew's two verbs, contrary to some opinion, exactly render the Hebrew, the servant the suffering servant, took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Matthew could not have used the Septuagint and still referred to physical diseases. Yet his own rendering of the Hebrew, far from wrenching Isaiah 53, 4 out of context, indicates a profound grasp of the theological connection between Jesus' healing ministry and the cross. In the cross of Jesus, even today, there is healing. It is true that by his stripes we are healed. Yet Carson continues, it should be stated that this discussion cannot be used to justify healing on demand. This text and others clearly teach that there is healing in the atonement, but similarly, there is the promise also in the atonement of the resurrection body. Even if believers do not inherit until the end of time, from the perspective of the New Testament writers, the cross is the basis for all the benefits that accrue to believers. But this does not mean that all such benefits can be secured at the present time on demand any more than we have the right and power to demand our resurrection bodies today. The availability of any specific blessing can be determined only by appealing to the overall teaching of Scripture. And then I add this, and the availability of any specific blessing, because it's in the cross, is available today. It is possible today, but it is determined by the Holy Spirit, by the community of faith, and by our own individual response. And all I'm saying is, you know what, it's the Holy Spirit's job to determine when he comes in and he brings heaven to earth. But it is also the community of faith and it's my own individual responsibility to say, God, if there is any way that through my own faith, through my own self that I'm limiting you, I don't want to be there. So whatever it is, move us all together in a place so that we don't limit what you want to do because of our own faith. There's an interesting thing as I was reading through Matthew and continue in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. Jesus, as he's talking about John the Baptist, and he says, you know, that you just go back and tell him these things are happening. He then says to them, I want to tell you something about John the Baptist. There's no greater prophet than he. But in the kingdom to come where you are, you will be greater than even all those prophets. And then he makes a very interesting statement. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. He says, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom throughout history has been forcefully advancing. It has been making its way from heaven into earth. It has been doing that step by step. God has been engineering, has been intervening, has been moving to bring his kingdom to earth. And then he makes this statement, and forceful people lay hold of it. 
That's a really interesting thing. What does it mean? Forceful people. It means that people of faith, like the prophets, he says, like John the Baptist, these prophets, they saw into the kingdom and they said, God, we want this kingdom now. They prayed for it. They challenged people. They said, let's walk in it as a people. Let's allow the love of God and the compassion of God and the work of God to begin to move through us in such a way that the kingdom will be forcefully brought into the present. And I believe that's still the heart of God. That there are forceful people in faith who say, God, you told Jesus and Jesus, you told us that we are to pray in this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And I just say, folks, let's think about this. Possibly. What if God was to for a season of time and maybe wants it longer by the faith of people who came together, desperately put aside our own selves and in all humbleness came before the Lord and prayed, Lord, would you please do this for us? We forcefully desire for you to do miracles, not because we want to feel better, but because we want people to see. We want all people, as that song said, to rise and see the glory of God. And I, uh, I know it's possible because you read through the Scriptures. There's a woman who comes to Jesus and she is a Canaanite woman and Jesus is up in Tyre. He's on vacation and he's with his disciples there and she somehow gets in and they're eating around the table and she says, my daughter's sick. And Jesus says, well, I didn't come for the Gentiles yet. It's really for the Jews. And she says, yet, you know how dogs will eat off the crumbs of the table? Would you just... And he's amazed at the fact that she would even believe that he would give something for her like the... Like, like the 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 crumbs that would fall from the table. And as a result of her faith, he says, it's as you desire, go home. And at that very hour, she was healed. It is possible to grab hold of forcefully the kingdom of God and to bring it from, from heaven to earth because God is a gracious and loving God. I don't understand. It's not because we deserve it, but somehow there's a sense that as we desire and we hunger and we say, God, we want more of you, he somehow does those things. So that his mother... When Jesus was first beginning the ministry, before he had done any miracle, he's at a wedding and she comes to him and she says, you know, son, they're out of wine. Sometimes grab hold of the kingdom. It's not the time. But forceful moms (laughs) sometimes grab hold of the kingdom. And Jesus said, "Okay." she didn't demand anything. You know what she said? She said to the servants, just do as he says. Kind of a little double bind there. But anyway, this whole thing is a mystery. Yet what is not a mystery are these truths that throughout history, broken and humble men and women have forcefully, by faith, grabbed hold of the kingdom of God. And God has graciously poured out signs and wonders and miracles so that the the whole lost world might know that he is who he is. So as you consider Acts 4, 29... They are praying after they have come under some persecution. And they say, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand, Father, to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And catch this. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went about speaking the word of God boldly. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes more, if it's okay, and I just want to share with you, this is not some academic exercise for me. This has been a part of my own life struggle for the last 20 years in trying to understand healing. Because in the the early 90s, my wife um, began to have numbness in her hands, and 
and she had some blurred vision, and she went to a number of neurologists in the Minneapolis area. Eventually, we had someone who helped guide us down to the Mayo Clinic, and we went to the Mayo Clinic, and it was this experience where they do all these kind of testings, they consult together, and we felt so cared for and so loved, and they sat down with us, this one, our, the one attending physician, and he just said to us, after they had done these tests, um, we, we believe 95% sure that your wife, Kevin Grace, we believe you have MS. And uh, I just, you know, you know how that is. It just kind of just shocks you. And uh, we rode home and just cried and just wondered about our little girls, what's going to happen. And they told us the progressions and the different things. And the thing about MS is interesting. It's it's it's. It's more of a symptom-based um, kind of analysis where they do these evoked potentials and they look at MRIs with the white spots called demyelation where the nerves are attacked and they see these little white spots. And they had seen, you know, enough of these four or seven, you know, out of seven symptoms, whatever it would be, to be able to say that. And so I went home and we went home and, and, and I get up earlier than Grace. I get up about five and she gets up about five ten. No. Um, she, and I remember for, a, it was a, a month or two, where I would wake up, and before I do anything, I just put my hand on Grace, and I just begged, I said, "God, would you heal her? Would you heal my wife? I don't deserve it, but I just ask that you would bring heaven to earth and touch her." Well, I did that for a while, and then one Friday morning, I woke up and I forgot to do that. So later in the day, I called back and I asked my, I, I just talked to Grace for a little bit. And I said, "How's your day going?" She says, "Really interesting. About 10 o'clock this morning." Two women who really love her and, and pray for her and very spiritually oriented women. Um, one of them just really felt compelled to pray for Grace. So she called the other lady and they came and they prayed for her at 10 in the morning and they prayed for God's healing. And they felt in the sense that God had not just called them, that God had healed her. And, and so she was very moved by that. And so I thought that was cool. Well, the next morning we're driving um, to Buffalo, Minnesota, and we're in the car. And, I, and, and my wife is talking to her mother. And, uh, you know, moms and daughters, how that goes. You, you could talk. I mean, she talked, I think, the whole way there. But at one point, I heard this. You're kidding, Mom. Really? About what time? And, and then she said a few other things, and she began to get teary-eyed. And after they went on a little bit later, all of a sudden she got off the phone, and I said, okay, with the teary-eyed part, you know, you're kidding, Mom. What, is, what was that all about? And she said, well, you know, yesterday around 10, my mom felt compelled to pray for me. She, she prayed and believed that God had healed me. And so I thought, wow, that's really cool. And so throughout that time, I'll condense the story. We had some different tests at times, and her MRI showed no progression at all. So, you know, whether she was healed or in remission, we just gave thanks to God. Well, what happened about four or five years ago, um, before I came here to Wayzata, just a year or two before I came to Wayzata, Grace would exercise a lot, and she would be exercising like four miles walking, and, and it happened about she'd get about four miles, and her fingers were getting more numb, and her foot would become heavier, and she began to develop a foot drop, and that became three miles, and that became just a few miles, and and so in that process, we said, you know, God, you 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 speak and you heal, you you use medicine, you've given us that as a gift. We just really knew that we should go back and check out at the Mayo Clinic. So we would go down there and we visit the Mayo Clinic. Our doctor, his name is Dr. Noseworthy. And he lays the whole thing out for us and he basically says, you know what, I don't see any more progression. It may be that it's just due to age and some of those things that the, I won't go through all that. It's just that maybe that's one of the symptoms of what the attack was. 
And he said, I won't be able to be your doctor. I'm getting a, a promotion. And we find out later he's now the CEO of Mayo. So he was a little bit of a promotion. And so we, he said, I want you to visit a doctor here in the Twin Cities. We went and visited uh, Dr. Birnbaum here in the Twin Cities. And when we met with him, the very first time we met with him, he looked at the MRIs and he said, you know, your MRIs don't seem to have any progression over the years, but I am concerned about one place. It's in your spine. There's some white spots there. And because there's not a lot of room for those nerves there, if you had any more attacks, I think you should go on some medication. So we said, let's go about and do that. We went on a government study where she was taking a couple different medications, where they watch you very closely, which is all the, the work of God. And I have to tell you, all along the way, it's just been this path of just surrendering and praying and saying, God, guide us and lead us and not demanding and just trying to trust and not trying to put our frame on it, but believing that God has spoken in these situations. And one thing I didn't tell you is there's a lady back then, and I've had a couple different ones, but a lady came to me with a prophetic word, and the word was this. This is not what it looks like. This was soon after those two, those, that... Those ladies came and prayed for my wife. It was about a few weeks later. She said, it's not what it's like. I was praying and I had this vision. And I saw this, this like green trunk inside of the tree and on the outside this dead bark. And, and that's all she said. I didn't know what to make of that. So I just let God allow these things to happen. And so she goes on to study and we're on it a year. So this last November, we go to the doctor and Dr. Birnbaum says, don't see any progression over the year, but I am really still concerned about your spinal cord. And for the first time, never had seen this before, he shows us her neck area. And he says, what I'm concerned about is what is spinal stenosis, which means a very narrowing of the spine so that the spinal column has very little spinal fluid. In fact, at one point it pinches it down at C6. And I said, well, could it be possible that this is an MS, but maybe the injury has come from that? And he said... I want you to get an operation. Long story short, we went to some others. We prayed, didn't feel comfortable. Saw Dr. Swankowski one night. Uh, it was Christmas Eve, and we talked to him, and he said, go see one of my guys at TRIA. We went and saw him, prayed about it, went through this operation just a few months back, two months ago. And they opened up the spine, and um, what's happening is really cool. She's actually only could walk about 20 minutes. Now she's walking about an hour every day without the same kind of heaviness to put you up. I don't know what will happen. I do know this, that God spoke to us, created faith, has been working with us. We've stayed in contact as we've walked through this. And if we hadn't gone through this process, even medically, I don't believe we would have come to this point where we would have seen the stenosis. And he said the stenosis, all the doctors have said this is not to restore anything. It's to prevent because it could really, down the road, um, just the slightest injury could, even at its worst, could cause some paralysis. So you need to do this. And I just testify, I don't get it. But let's really say, God, we want to grab hold of the kingdom of heaven and have the faith to bring to earth this reality. And let's do it as humble people. Let's pray. Father, I just um, offer this up to you. I pray that as people come forward, if they would like prayer um, for you to heal in any way, relationally, um, whatever it might be, we want you to be at work and we trust you. We know that you've given us the gift of medicine and yet we know that medicine isn't the, the know-all. We know you are. And so in faith we come to you and we ask you and we forcefully grab hold of, in faith, your goodness and grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. <laughs>